Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. Coming up later this hour, we're opening up the phones for faith leaders to join us to share what they're saying to their congregations about the war in Gaza, the intense feelings that so many of us have about what's happening there, as well as about the uh, precipitating attack, about the conflict that's been going on for so many years in the Middle East. So we're going to open up the phones to hear from faith leaders, whether they are imams or rabbis, pastors or priests. I want to hear from you how you're helping your congregants go through this very difficult time where emotions are so fraught, where relationships with, within your faith community might be frayed over what's happening in the Middle East. We want to hear your input on ways that you're trying through your leadership to help your congregants deal with what's happening and their strong emotions regarding the events in Gaza. That's coming up a little bit later this hour. But we begin with recent analysis of U.S. Census data, which shows that a disproportionate number of higher-income Californians are moving out of state than coming in. What we've typically seen in California, even with uh, the flight of, of some of the higher earners for a variety of reasons, has been that we've been getting into California well-educated people to replace the ones that we lose. Now what we're seeing, according to the data as described in Don Lee's Los Angeles Times story of today, uh, what we're seeing is people with graduate and professional degrees disproportionately leaving the state and not getting people with the same uh, economic prospects to replace those folks. Joining us to talk about what the implications are for California, which are significant in tax collections, is Eric McGee, Policy Director and Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. Eric, thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Elaborate a bit on the trend that we're seeing, because I think one of the questions that many of us have is, is this just aberrant because of the pandemic? More people can work remotely, and we're, we're kind of seeing a sorting and a shift going on because of that. Or is this a longer-term phenomenon that's really going to make it difficult for California to keep up its social programs? What's your sense of what we're seeing? I think it's a little bit of both. So, um, you know, up till about 2018, we had um, on on net we had people coming into the state from other states on the higher income levels, and then in the lower education income levels, people were on net leaving California for other states. Since about 2019, which predates the pandemic, we we started to see that reverse, and actually, it was going we were losing more people to other states. 
Um, and then it really accelerated a lot during the pandemic. So I think a part of it is the fact that during the pandemic, um, higher income earners are more likely to be able to work from home. During the pandemic, they could keep their California job and they could go live someplace that was cheaper and be better on net overall. Um, it's not clear that that's going to be true moving forward. So my expectation is some piece of this is going to be dialed back. But certainly there were signs that it was already moving in, in, in a kind of negative direction before the pandemic as well. And what do we understand about the reasons? Uh, obviously, the, the economic factors are huge because you've got very high housing costs in California. You've got a comparatively high taxation rate in California. Uh, how much of those factors do you think drive this? I think the housing is a really big piece. So, again, historically, we've we've lost uh, lower income, lower education people to other states at a much higher rate. Um, we also that's still the case even today. Uh, it's just higher now for um, than it used to be. The, the loss is higher now than it used to be for high income people as well. But um, but the, the and those housing costs are really going to hit those lower income people a lot more than the higher income people. But higher income people, I think, are also even feeling the pinch in California. When they have the option to go to another state and and live more cheaply, they will often take that. I think once that decision is made, I think taxes do some, come into it, and at least on the margins, um, uh, we find that uh, people are more likely to move. Higher income people, that is, are more likely to move to a, uh, a zero tax state like Nevada or Texas than they are to a state that has an income tax. Those income taxes really are the, the that's the the thing that's really going to um, hit the higher income earners in California, especially low income earners should not be motivated by that as much because their, their income taxes are actually um, pretty modest in yeah. California by comparison. It's really the high income earners who pay that, that higher rate. And that's because of the progressive state income tax in California, where it's higher earners who uh, disproportionately pay, pay a much higher percentage of overall tax collections in California. So when you get more of those people moving out of the state than moving into the state, that that has a significant effect on on the state's bottom line. And Eric, you want to elaborate on that? Yes, for sure. So you can. So we we do rely in California um, very heavily on high income earners on um, uh, um, capital gains uh, on, on the stock market. Um, those kinds of things that are are going to be uh, enjoy those those um, that income is going to be enjoyed. Uh, almost entirely by people at the high end of the income scale, very high end of the income scale in many cases. So it doesn't actually take too many of those people who have a lot of money um, leaving the state before it starts to have a little bit of an impact on our state finances. So it's definitely a factor. Uh, I would say you know, we, we, there's a lot of discussion about this $68 billion um, deficit that the state is currently facing. Um, it's likely that that all but just a small fraction of that deficit is due to other things. It's due to, um, you know, failing to properly uh, plan for for um, uh, tax revenues. It's about, uh, you know, the declines in the stock market that we were seeing um, until recently. So those are the kinds of things that are really going to be mostly driving that 
that deficit. But I think the the loss of, of high income earners to other states is going to be a small piece of it as well. Uh, tax filers in the top one percent of income in California. Again, I'm I'm citing from Don Lee's Los Angeles Times story on this. Uh, those in that top one percent who earn around a million dollars a year and above have typically accounted for between 40 and 45 percent of the state's total personal income tax. So so just think about that again. One percent of tax filers generate 40 to 45 percent of tax collections. Um, Now, also looking at the tax filing years of 2020 and 2021, the average gross income of taxpayers who moved from California to another state, so this is our out-migration, was 137,000 on average. That is is up from just $75,000 in average gross income back in 2015 and 2016. So in a five-year period, you're looking at the average gross income of people leaving California going up, gosh, what, what? that's like a 75% increase or something like that, 80% increase. So um, that just gives, quantifies what we're seeing in this shift. If you have questions for our guest, Eric McGee of the Public Policy Institute of California, where he's Senior Fellow and Policy Director, we're at 866-893-5722, 893 you can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Eric, um, former Governor Schwarzenegger, one of the things that he did was set up a committee to try and look at ways of diversifying income tax collections in the state so it wouldn't be so volatile, so heavily weighted toward higher income earners. But but that there wasn't really progress made on that front. Are there other ways that you think California could protect itself against the loss of these revenues? Yeah, well, I, I think the uh, certainly diversifying the, the tax base makes sense. It is a challenging thing because um, the state has a progressive income tax in, 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 you know, for a reason. It's because we think it makes more sense for higher income earners to pay a disproportionate share of the burden of, of running the state. Um, but that always does run the risk of scaring those uh, high-income earners out of the state. So uh, I think having that conversation about ways to diversify um, our our portfolio, if you will, um, does make a lot of sense. It's always been, as you say, it's been a challenging thing to try to try to negotiate and coordinate because um, there's going to be some losers. A lot of the other states that we talk about, um, Texas, et cetera, that don't have an income tax, they 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 uh, they draw their taxation through other means, um, through a lot of sales taxes, through uh, higher property taxes. In many cases, we have Prop 13 here that limits how much you pay on your property. So those kinds of things um, end up, uh, you know, skewing some of those uh, those tax systems toward the lower end, where lower end people, uh, lower income people, end up paying a little bit more. So it's a little bit of a, a challenge to try to yeah. to address this issue. We've I think kind of the main way we've we've uh, jury rigged it recently is by having a, a, a savings account, if you will, for the state in good times. So we have a little bit of a cushion. It, it, it doesn't often seem to be enough um, to 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 make up for some of these big deficits. 
but but you know it's it's just a it's just an overall challenge to figure out how to navigate this volatility like you're talking about. Dan in Rancho Mirage says, doesn't the shift of wealthy taxpayers moving out of state coincide with the change in the federal tax code, which eliminated federal deductions for income tax and mortgage payments that are stayed uh, paid to state and local entities? Yeah, so that. There is some research that shows that higher income earners did uh, leave at a slightly higher rate right after that change occurred. Um, but the big shift that we're seeing in terms of um, the, this, uh, this migration out is, is about uh, the pandemic. Um, and that's, that's really, it, it predated the pandemic just a little bit, um, but, but it, uh, most of it is about the pandemic. And that's why we think um, on balance, it's, it's largely it's a, it's a kind of a combination story between the high cost of living and perhaps the high taxes in California, uh, but also the flexibility to go work somewhere else because of remote work. And that remote work option uh, continues to be there. You can continue for many people. You can live in uh, North Dakota and, and, and zoom in to California. But going forward, probably it's going to be less available for more workers because increasingly companies are saying, hey, you know, if, if you want to work remotely, you still have to come into the office one day a week, say. Or if you want to work remotely, you get paid a different rate if you live in North Dakota than um, a different salary if you live in North Dakota than you, if you live in California. How much? Those uh, kinds of things are going to start to affect, I think, how many people are willing to make this trade off. But I think yeah. it's going to continue to be. Um, be there and be an option um, for the foreseeable future. And Eric, what's your sense of how much of this is political sorting? We've, of course, seen this across the country where people more and more are apt to live among people who share their politics. And um, when you look at, at the migration, particularly to Texas, to some extent to Arizona, are we seeing much of that being about political sorting? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a tricky thing to get a handle on, but we've tried to look at this, and um, as, as best we can tell um, at CPSC, um, is uh, the the how migration does have a slight tilt toward Republicans and conservatives, but it's probably not large. Um, certainly, if you ask people in California currently whether they thought about moving, we've done that in our statewide survey, and the the partisan and ideological gaps on that question are absolutely massive. So Republicans and conservatives are much more likely to say that they've thought about leaving the state. But whether they actually pull the trigger and move is a totally different question. It's important to remember that even if we're talking about, whether we're talking about high-income earners or low-income earners, um, the share of the total population that is moving out is still relatively small. It's on the order of maybe one to 3%. Now that, that adds up over time but most people, when they move, are moving around this within California mm-hmm. and not moving from California to another state. We're talking with Eric McGee, Policy Director, Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Eric, I want to thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. We appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking with you again as, uh, in the future as we look at uh, more of these issues. Terrific. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you, Eric McGee, joining us from the Public Policy Institute of California, Policy Director and Senior Fellow. Coming up, I want to hear from you how your faith community, if you're a faith leader, how you're dealing with the tremendous emotions that we experience, the pain that we feel from what we've seen unfolding in the Middle East over the past several weeks. 
What sorts of messages are you providing to your congregates? What sort of counseling have you provided? What sort of uh, texts have you called on to provide comfort and guidance to those that are going through this experience? We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm interested in hearing from you. If you're a leader of a faith community, what sorts of uh, conversations you've been having with your congregants, whether that's individually, people distraught about what's happening in the Middle East, or whether that's uh, from the front of the auditorium, what you've had to say to members of your congregation. We're at 866-893-5722. And like all of these topics in which we're discussing what's happening in Gaza, I'd ask that you please not not get into speechifying or, or you know, talking about one's politics. This is really about much more the nature of uh, rabbinical or imam-directed or pastoral counseling. This is really about how you help people navigate this on a personal basis. And if you're involved in interfaith conversations, I would also be very interested in hearing how you handle that in a time that is as fraught as this and with the considerable differences uh, which people are looking at what's happening in the Middle East. It's, it's so hard when there's such fundamental differences in how people are seeing what's unfolding. Again, we're at 866-893-5722. Priests, pastors, imams, rabbis, I want to hear from you. Uh, I'm probably leaving out many other religious titles, but uh, please, if you lead a faith community, I'd like to hear from you at 866-893-5722. Joining me is Rabbi Susan Goldberg, founder of Nefesh, a Jewish spiritual community on the east side of, of Los Angeles. Rabbi Goldberg, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me this morning, Larry. Uh, I can only imagine how uh, your congregation and people that you talk with are dealing with this. First of all, I assume that there are are some very strong opinions that don't necessarily agree among your congregation. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I appreciate how you're centering this on people's experiences because it is an overwhelming time. Uh, and there's so many different aspects to this. Part of what happens is when it all gets conflated into one thing, we lose the complexity of what's happening um, in the experience. So there are probably four different conversations that are happening at once. One is the horrific events that happened on October 7th. We have community members who are awaiting hostages to be released. Um, we have, thank God, two hostages connected to our community who were released, but there wow. are two more that people, you know, so there are those and those Very who have family connection. members who were killed in the kibbutzim. So they're everything connected to October 7th. There's then the war, that subsequent war, and the you know, the, again, the waiting for the hostages and then the humanitarian crisis that's developing in Gaza and the um, just overwhelming numbers of children who have died in Gaza. And there are people in our community who have done support work and Palestinian support work as Jews for many, many years. And so they have that perspective. There are those who are con concerned about the just broken discourse who are on college campuses or in workplaces where people are just not able to communicate each other, with each other, to say the least, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's put and it lightly. And people are demonized. Yes. And then there's the rise of anti-Semitism. So people are having, you know, daily fear in a new way for a lot of our community. Um, now, this is not new to, to this time. It, it's, it, it began again to really show its face around 2016. So it's in the context of the rising anti-Semitism that this has happened, which with more. So there are like multiple <laughs> conversations. Mm -hmm happening. And actually, one of the things that I have found that's hard is needing to get people clear from what experience they're talking from. Because often people will be trying to talk from one of these four clashing and not naming that, right? To say, here's where I'm at right now. It's inside of this experience. So a lot of what I am doing is pastoral care, is listening to people, is trying to support people mm -hmm. where they are inside of an incredible diversity of experience. So I had one day a, few, a couple weeks ago where I, within two hours, I spoke with somebody around their experience and how isolated, alone uh, they were feeling and distraught. And then I spoke to another person two hours later, isolated and alone and distraught. And if you talked about the political per perspectives of both of them, they were, I guess you could say, close to opposite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet the experience inside of it was, the emotional experience was very similar. Yeah, they're grieving, they're angry, That's they're it. hurt, they're worried, all, yes, of, these all things, of these things, regardless of their political stance. That's it. And, and... Struggling with finding connection with other people, you know, f family conversations are difficult. I mean, that's one of the things that people are not maybe aware of is the diversity within the Jewish community. There is incredible diversity within the Jewish community around perspectives and experiences. Um, and like a, a very clear one is people who have Israeli family or lived in Israel. Um, that's a strong experience right now. And others who, who have, you know, who have a... Um, a, a different framework and one that is, you know, important, connected to humanitarian work, who see what's happening in the war and, and are distraught and upset. And, and so to ha hold all of these perspectives in community, what we've really done is double down on dialogue. So well, we're it, having facilitated community dialogue. It spaces. also seems to me that, that there is a generational component. And I'd be interested to hear what you think, but it, it seems to me that with older Jews for whom the Holocaust is not 
that far back, um, and uh, it, it that that still is so resonant. Um, where for younger Jews, even if if they lost um, great grandparents, maybe even grandparents, it still does it doesn't still live in them in the same way. And so I wonder how much of that factors into this generational difference. Absolutely. I think there's a, a generational piece for sure. I'm not I don't want to deny that that's very present. Our community tends to be skew younger, um, but we definitely have elders in our community. But it's also, again, not that simple. Um, so there are elders who are also holding a different experience mm-hmm. than a younger person. And so it is, it's all, and, you know, everybody sees, you know, the horrific nature of what's happening and everyone's hearts are broken. I mean, what happened on October 7th is just, is unbelievably and for a lot of people, it's still October 8th. That's mm-hmm. the thing that people don't realize. With trauma, so it's still there. And I'll, I just want to add, too, but if you see the humanitarian situation in Gaza, it is horrible. Yeah. And your heart breaks. Yeah. And so there is, it's not only by age that people are having No, no, no. I know. I just, it's yeah. just, none of this is only. It's all yeah. multifactorial. Uh, and and um, certainly no one is in lockstep on how they respond to this. But I do wonder, you mentioned for so many it's October 8th. Um, how how everybody grieves at different rates yes. and in different ways. And this is not resolved because there are still hostages in custody. Yeah. So, so the aftermath of that event is still alive. How do you help people through that? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the idea of the unfolding trauma, right? right? It takes time, and there's been no time. And then in a place of trauma where there's just been, like, more trauma <laughs> added on. Um, so that's the piece, that it's going to take time for this to um, to heal and to unpack and to figure out what people need. And it's such a time of disequilibrium right now. A lot of the conversations, you can just tell that people are not centered in what they're needing. So a lot of is listening, again, communal prayer, um, sharing prayer together, um, saying Kaddish for all who have died, um, for doing so ritual prayer. And as I said earlier, we are really also having those difficult conversations. And I tell people the conversations are difficult, but they are not impossible. Are, Are you seeing more people coming back to services looking for that connection? Yes, I am. We are seeing people coming, wanting to come to services, wanting to connect with their Jewish identity in a way that maybe they haven't for some time. And that's a meaningful thing. And and they're wanting to be in spaces that allow them to have a whole range of feelings. They want to be able to be a Jewish person who connects with their identity. And again, for a lot of, you know, we were talking about generational. For a lot of young people, this is a push to them to re- to connect with their Jewish identity in a deeper way. And people, though, want to be in spaces that don't feel polarized. They don't want to be in a situation where they can't feel the complexity and nuance of all that is happening. And to hold the thing, I just want to share that the word racha which is compassion in Hebrew, has a plural form, im. So it's this idea that actually it's compassions, that compassion is plural, that we have the capacity to have 
an abundance of compassion. We're talking with Rabbi Susan Goldberg, the founder of Nefesh, a Jewish spiritual community on the east side of Los Angeles. Again, I would love to hear from faith leaders from all different communities how you're talking with your congregations and with those who worship with you individually to help them through this very difficult time. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Also joining us is Sheikh Suhail Mullah, who's resident scholar at the Islamic Society of the West Valley and director of Halil Center, a community spiritual and psychological wellness center. Uh, Sheikh Mullah, thank you very much for being with us. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for having us. Uh, first of all, your thoughts about what Rabbi Goldberg is saying, and I, I wonder if, if much of what she's saying is applicable to your community and to ways you're trying to help those who, who are seeking your comfort and care. Yes, um, Rabbi Goldberg framed it in an interesting way in the beginning, you know, these different layers um, and different uh, sort of ways in, 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 in which people have experienced the recent events and i would add to that in the muslim community there's a there's a whole nother realm and, and layer that's that's there and that is the fact that um this is this latest iteration of this conflict is uh is coming at the end or not at the end but in the most recent framing of decades and decades and decades of oppression at least from the palestinian perspective so you know there's this conflict has has taken front stage uh, on, in the world and and that has impacted the muslim community in a way in which we haven't seen before and what i mean by that is you have seen in the recent last two months 18 plus thousand palestinians dead 8,000 under the rubble, another another 50 to 60,000 people injured. And when we say injured, I mean, we've seen the kind of injuries that people are sustaining. So the images that are coming out of Palestine are just so heart-wrenching that um, many people in the Muslim community, the, the level of distress that they felt because they've um you know they know of the conflict generally speaking they they m much of the muslim community is aware of of you know the the decades of of sort of apartheid like conditions that palestinians are living in but then to see firsthand what that actually means and and what people's lives are at this point in time has brought a tremendous amount of distress to the Muslim community. Now, that's just the general community, but then, of course, within the amongst the Muslim community, you have uh, a sizable Palestinian community, and that community has been absolutely devastated. We're talking about families local uh, that that we know in Los Angeles that are in our congregations that have not lost one member of their family. Some of them have have lost their whole entire extended family. 
There was a gentleman I was speaking with the other day. He lost 67 members of his family. And that was as of three weeks ago. God knows what has happened since. And, and that story is a, is a repeated story. Um, we 15, 40 and beyond uh, family members that are just gone one in one stroke. And so that community is facing tremendous loss and tremendous um, uh, trauma that is, you know, basically re revived by this new conflict because oh. this is an ongoing conflict that is, is that is not new. Sheikh Mullah, what do you say to someone who's lost 67 extended huh. family? I was reading about, it may have been the LA Times, someone's lost 100. I mean, the numbers are, are so staggering. And, and um, the your your congregant with 67 family members it has to be just in uh, shock in it's incomprehensible what do you say how do you help someone who's in that circumstance L larry what can you say mm. i'm as as i'm talking to you thinking about it tears are coming to my eyes what can you say i can only look at them in their eyes and and just and just be there in that space with them the one gentle, this one gentleman that specifically that I mentioned, I you know I I I just instinctively like kissed his hand, as just a way of showing him like, there's nothing I can say or do that that is is that is meaningful in any sort of way. How can you, how can you, um, bring, um, any sense, make any sense of of that of those events and and what that means to that particular person when their whole family has been and they're you know these are this is their childhood their their memories um they go there every summer to visit their family palestinian families are generally very connected with their families back home so to speak even though they may have been living in the u.s for 30 40 50 years and that's a tradition that they've kept up because of the you know because of the sort of oppressive reality that they live in they want to keep that connection very strong and so these are people who are very very connected to their family and there's and there's not much you can do one thing we are doing in the community though is um, holding healing circles for uh, community members that are struggling so we we have one for you know uh, palestinian families that have lost a family member uh, there's just some other general ones where people are 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 dealing with um, the general um, stresses and struggles that they have in daily life that are now compounded by uh, what the images that they're intaking. We have a, a, another healing circle actually that I'm doing tomorrow for a relief organization that that serves uh, in in Palestine, and their U.S.-based employees are you know they're just they're overwhelmed um especially their marketing team who has to literally sort through images so as to be able to then go out into the community and appeal for, to the community for help and so forth another organization that we were that um we've done a healing circle for they are um on the front lines of, of fighting for civil rights of muslims in in america um and there's a and that's a big fight currently because there is so much censure. There is so much doxing. There is so much, you know, just um, uh, uh, the Muslims are, are feel afraid to speak up. And that's a complexity that um, makes it even worse. Like you, I see people that I consider my brothers and sisters on the other side of the world 
um, in the in the horrible situation that they're in, and I can't even speak out and defend them. I can't even go out and protest and show my face because I'm afraid of consequences that may uh, be waiting for me when I get back to work or for my future, gra uh, you know, graduate work if I'm in if I'm in college, and and that's a real threat across the board that um, members of the Muslim community are facing that uh, we cannot even speak up to defend the rights of people who have who have basically no voice at all we're trying to lift that voice and when we lift our voice there are ramifications for us and so it's kind of we're kind of in you know just a very uh, absolutely um so what's the word I'm looking for? Just, you know, just feel so hand tied and so and feel like Sheikh, there's muzzles over our mouths on every level. Sheikh Mullah, we'll come back. We'll continue with you. We're talking with Sheikh Suhail Mullah, who's resident scholar at the Islamic Society of the West Valley. Uh, he served as an imam in Orange County. He's worked with the L.A. Unified School District, and he directs the Halil Center, a community spiritual and psychological wellness center. Also with us, the founder of Nefesh, a Jewish spiritual community on the east side of L.A., Rabbi Susan Goldberg. I want to hear from other faith leaders here in Southern California. What sorts of conversations are you having with your congregants? Are you seeing more people return to worship because of, of that looking for connection, that wanting uh, to come together with others who are experiencing similar pain as, as oneself is? We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3, the role of faith communities and faith leaders in helping Southern Californians cope with the tremendous uh, emotional consequences of what's unfolding in the Middle East. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. Rabbi Ben Goldstein joining us from Pasadena. Rabbi Goldstein, thank you for calling in. Please uh, briefly share with us how you're helping your congregants. Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to help my congregants in, you know, listening to their fears and talking to them about family members who are experiencing multiple, you know, missile threats per day, uh, trying to talk to people about being the light. You know, we just celebrated Hanukkah, which is about miracles uh, and the miracle that we're still here uh, being the greatest miracle uh, of the Jewish people and trying to show people that it's been dark at times before and that we have persevered. Um, people are, are really shaken, not only because they're afraid for their family members in Israel, but also because they're afraid for what people think of them. Um, you know, words have been thrown around and people who are good people, you know, people who, who fight for justice and for freedom, and they're now being told that they support a genocide, and they don't really know how to, how to deal with that, and, and they feel isolated and alone. And so a lot of people are coming 
back to Jewish communities to feel safe, for, you know, if nothing else. Yeah. Rabbi Goldstein, what, what's the name of your community? Uh, Pasadena Jewish Temple and Center. All right. Rabbi Goldstein, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you joining us. I want to go back to Sheikh uh, Suhail Mullah of the Islamic Society of West Valley, where he's resident scholar. Sheikh Mullah, you were talking before the break about um, the the feeling that uh, Muslims can't really speak out, and particularly Palestinian-Americans feel like they they can't because of the backlash that they're going to suffer professionally, academically, and, and otherwise. Um, and, and I wonder if you could elaborate on other uh, forms of, of anti-Islamic actions that, that your community is concerned with and that affects their daily lives. Yes, thank you, Larry, for um, for opening up that door. We there's numerous the Islamophobia is up at a rate that um, we've never seen before, and it has everything to do with this particular conflict. And so, anyone who's going online, posting online, there was a case of a mother just recently who was a teacher at a private school, and her son was a student at the same school. The mother posted something to the effect of um you know uh we're we're praying for the for the deceased and hoping for freedom for the those that remain alive and 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 you know some something very generic she was fired from her job and not only that her son who's a student at the same school was kicked out of school for nothing that he did zero is because of his mother's comments and and so we're seeing a lot of that people that are facing extreme censure on on whenever they do post. So again, the feeling of not being able to say anything and to even express solidarity uh, with the with Palestinians to um, express that uh, may may God grant the Palestinians freedom or something to that effect is construed in in ways that. Um, that are just absolutely unimaginable and ridiculous, quite frankly, uh, that put people into hot water in, in their professional and academic careers, as you said. And so it, it, it plays out in, in so many different spheres of, of Muslim life right now. When, when October 7th happened, many different institutions put out letters um, talking and framing this as a one-sided reality. And so that that again left um, Muslims, Palestinians feeling voiceless. Well, wait a second. There are many people who are being harmed overall on you know as it relates to what's happened in the recent past, and again to what's connected to decades of oppression, and the denial of that and the non-acknowledgement of that in and of itself gives voice to people that. Um, uh, you know, that want to side against Palestinians and gives them uh, the feeling that they can express what they want to express without with impunity. But when when Palestinians or Muslims speak up, that that is there's just such a heavy clamp down that comes. And so uh, we've seen protests where I, my daughter, she's a student at UCLA. They went out in protest on campus. They were told to cover their faces. The protest organizers 
They told them to cover their faces because they are seriously afraid of their being, being targeted for, for their future and so forth. So. I, I need to break. We're talking with Sheikh Suhail Mullah joining us, Islamic Society of West Valley and director of Khalil or Halil Center, excuse me, a community spiritual and psychological wellness center. Rabbi Susan Goldberg, we'll hear more from her when she comes back, uh, founder of Nefesh, a uh, Jewish spiritual community in Los Angeles on the east side. She's served on the Interfaith Clergy Roundtable for the County Department of Mental Health and New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change. When we come back, we'll talk about what's happened to interfaith dialogue in the wake of the conflict in Gaza and the terrible tragedy that has unfolded there. 866-893-5722 to hear from faith leaders. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. How faith communities are grappling with the war in Gaza, the intense feelings, and the true loss, very directly, that people in communities here in Southern California has experienced. We're talking with Sheikh Suhail Mullah of the Islamic Society of the West Valley and Rabbi Susan Goldberg, a founder of Nefesh Jewish Spiritual Community on the east side of L.A. Rabbi Goldberg, you've, you've been at the center of interfaith dialogue. Uh, yeah, that's obviously something that you feel is extremely important and that you're devoted to. Has that been able to continue in this period, or is that is that just fraught at this point and needs to be set aside until uh, things cool? No, it definitely has been able to continue, and and yes, it is fraught. <laughs> both both are true in what you just asked. I want to say that where we just were talking about the discourse, what you were just speaking about, um, and the sense that you cannot speak out without... Um, you know, harm to you is really also being felt in the Jewish community. And the, there was an incredible um, shock and surprise around some of the statements that were put out right after the events of October 7th. And, um, and there has been, it, you know, it is not that it's not challenging to continue to be in interfaith dialogue, but it is absolutely possible. And what happens when in these situations is you see the strength of your relationships. And, you know, interfaith dialogue is not just for the happy times when we share a meal and talk about, you know, the ingredients and what they mean to our cultures, which is meaningful. But interfaith relationships are when it's challenging, when things are happening that we really do need to be in dialogue about. And so that's why we we are centered in this work and we continue to be and we're committed to it. It means that we also can have opportunities um, for for small group and one-on-one -on -one conversations with each other as clergy, especially we are doing this. Um, there is an incredibly strong interfaith uh, clergy connection in Los Angeles. And the conversations are not always easy. Yeah, and yeah. they are based in our willingness to express to each other compassion, to express curiosity, and to have courage. Because it's not these relationships are not only about let's all get along. These relationships are also about honesty and about learning from each other. And so and, so you you get tremendous value from hearing 
um, Muslim faith leaders talk about their perception of events that are very close to you and your congregation. And that has to be hard at times. It is hard at times. And a willingness to listen, a willingness to listen and to be heard, right? If if the, if it didn't feel there was mutuality in the relationships, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't feel um, connected and like a, and like an honest relationship. So the conversations are not always easy. I'll find that we, as I laid out those four aspects earlier when I spoke, I'll find that you know that we each are wanting to to be in a different place and mm-hmm. needing to hear where we are, and though there is the deepest you know, values that underscore our, our faiths. And we are often, you know, expressing them in different ways, but we all are moving towards compassion, towards love, towards justice. And, and it is painful when um, the, what's unfolding in the world, because they so, it so speaks, there's so many of the actions that are happening are against some of the, our deepest values of our shared traditions. And what we, what we can do here, though, is to really, really double down on creating communities where we can be heard and that w- where we can continue to connect with each other, not from being dishonest about our reality, but from being honest and vulnerable and courageous. It's Rabbi Susan Goldberg, uh, let me just, in the remaining brief time, we have Sheikh uh, Suhail Mula. Um, have you been involved in interfaith dialogue uh, since October 7th? Uh, yes, Larry, I do have um, strong interfaith uh, connections, partners, um, you know, for, for a long time. And, and there was, it was really nice after, um, the events of October 7th, there were, there were many reach outs, um, from that, uh, that, you know, people reached out to me, uh, Christian pastors, uh, Jewish rabbis and, um, expressing their concern, expressing their, uh, condolence and compassion for what's, you know, as far as, uh, what's happening in the, all of the death that's taking place in Gaza, and and so that was that was that was that was meaningful, and then um, and then since then I have had some indi- individual conversations um, in person with uh, different faith leaders where we've been able to talk about this um, with a couple of Jewish rabbi friends where we have been able to and and yes I was to be honest with you was a little anxious right mm-hmm. going into understandably. Of- is, can I be my full self? Can I express things the way I need to express them? Can I give voice to the Palestinian people, even though this person sitting across the table from me may have um, a very different reality that they sit with or a very different community? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and their experience may be polar opposite Um in in some in and to put it in you know blunt words, there may be enemies in terms of uh, of uh, of one side from the other. You know, based on uh, if you take it all the way back to the core of the conflict. So that those have been challenging um, conversations. But the, when you have good friendship, when you have strong friendship, and I think Rabbi Goldberg made some reference to this, you have a you have a good relationship. 
um, if there is sincerity between both parties, there can yeah, definitely yeah. still be a dialogue, and there can definitely still be a compassion that's shared and felt from both sides. Thank you. And- I, I'm so sorry I have to cut it there, Sheikh Suhail Mullah and Rabbi Susan Goldberg. Thank you so much for joining us on this hour of Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Suzanne just sharing about Jim Ladd's passing. Such a giant of FM radio and of rock radio, not just in Los Angeles, but nationally with his Sirius XM show. What I love so much about radio is that intimacy. When you listen to someone like Jim Ladd over the years, you really you feel like you know him, at least that was my experience. And I had that time and again with people that I grew up listening to that were a, a big part of, of my radio day. And um, it's, it's just, it, it is the power of that medium. And when someone like Jim uses it as effectively as he did, it was, it was really part of a special gathering to be listening to his programs over the years, KMET and KLOS, and of course, uh, nationally on Sirius XM later. On this segment of Air Talk, we turn our attention to the economy and what the uh, Federal Reserve's policy has been on interest rates, where, of course, they've been gradually raising rates uh, over the past couple of years and with the hopes of um, dealing with a soft landing of the economy, if possible, and not knocking the U.S. into a recession, um, but at at the same time dealing with all the, the heat in the economy. Where are we at now, and how has it changed economists' thinking about how our economy performs? Joining us is William Lee, chief economist and executive director at the Milken Institute in Southern California. Bill, it's good to have you with us again. Larry, thanks for having me. So describe where you see us sitting right now with with the economy, with the future of interest rates, and whether a recession is still possible. Well, Chair Powell's last press conference was a real game changer. He um, he essentially announced to everyone, well, you know, we think that we may be near the top of where inflation may be going, um, and, and we're not quite certain yet, but but at least we're talking about where the afterlife is going to be. We no longer are so, just single-mindedly 
going toward lowering inflation down 2% because we think it's on its way. Um, and, and now we need to worry about the rest of the economy. Is the economy itself weakening because we've raised interest rates so much? Uh, has our medicine been enough? Or do, are we concerned that it might be too much? And right now, they're beginning that discussion. When do we start to ease up on the tightening? And, and, and the fact that he put that on the table became a game changer for the markets because the markets have been ignoring his warning that we need to stay fighting inflation. And they thought that, well, we're going to be easing because he, the Fed worries about unemployment and, and getting the economy too weak, especially in an election year. Well, Chair Powell has been saying, no, 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 we are committed to lowering inflation. Now he's saying, we think we've done a pretty good job up to this point, um, and now we need to, to balance the discussion a bit. And I think that's where, uh, where, where the markets are right now. We've had a boom in the market, uh, I think the longest uh, uh, daily uh, positive streak in the stock market for the last seven or eight days. Uh, uh, and and, and um, I think everyone in the markets are some, essentially overreacting to that statement because I think Chair Powell and the rest of the FOMC are still pretty cautious. They really are not certain that we kill the inflation, uh, and, 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 um, and I think uh, the markets are too early to, to, to breaking out the yeah, champagne. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Bill Lee, Chief Economist, Executive Director at the Milken Institute, also with us, the founding partner at Beacon Economics, economist Chris Thornburg. Chris, good to have you with us. So what do you think that, that many of your uh, peer economists got wrong about how the economy was performing? Um, well, uh, well, first of all, good morning, Larry, and happy holidays. Nice nice to be back. Um yeah, I mean, it. We are really in in interesting times. You know, I always um, have to discuss what I call the the giant gap between our social narratives about the economy and the actual trends within the economy that you can see in the data. Take for example, a year ago, uh, the Wall Street Journal um, survey of economic forecasters. Well, those numbers came in, and these forecasters suggested we had a 60% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. That was at the end of 2022. Here we are at the end of 2023, and not only is there no recession in sight, uh, the economy is actually taken off, right up to and including, of course, a third quarter number that came in at 5%, a screaming growth rate, the best in a couple of years. What's interesting is, and, and going back to, um, uh, to what Bill was saying earlier, about the Federal Reserve release. I, I couldn't agree more about the bizarre overreaction of the markets. What the Federal Reserve said at the top of their FOMC release was, well, we think the economy's weakening. Well, of course it is. You're not gonna have too many 5% growth quarters when you don't have enough workers. It's as simple as that. So the fact that it's weakening is, is obvious, but you know, none of this gets to the underlying issue which is we have continued to discuss inflation as if it's been a big negative problem for the economy. We've discussed the Fed rate hikes as if it's been truly negative for the overall economy. And yet the economy is doing great, which is something that nobody seems to be acknowledging in these conversations. Well, and to what what have been the effects then of the rate increases are obviously mortgage rates have gone higher. You know, what effect has that had on the housing market, for example? Because even if it hasn't had a huge effect on the overall economy, there are sectors that have been affected, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. And yes, if you're a credit sensitive part of the economy, if you're a real estate agent in commercial or residential, times are tough right you. There's not a lot going on. Take, for example, home sales, which are down 
oh, 40% from where they were a year, a half ago in terms of, of overall number. But take a step back yet again and look at some other aspects of the housing market. In the last six months, despite those high mortgage rates, home prices have started to go up again. Unbelievable, of course, reflecting um, the idea that there's simply not enough housing across this nation right now. And as a result of that shortage, another interesting situation is that right now we're running about 1.4 million housing starts per year. That's a very healthy number. That's higher than at any point between 2008 and 2018. Um, so yet again, almost no reduction in actual construction activity despite the hike in interest rates. So the interest rates are having an impact on a small segment of the economy, but for the rest of the economy, things are just fine. We're talking with Chris Thornburg, economist and founding partner at Beacon Economics, William Lee, chief economist and executive director at the Milken Institute. If you have questions for them about where our economy is and uh, what the forecasts have been over the past year and what they're forecasting for 2024, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at LA com. Please include your first name and your location. So, Bill, as, as you look at 2024, Chris mentioned, for example, the worker shortage that we've got. Um, what do you think is, is likely to happen over the next 12 months? I think we need to start worrying about the imbalances in the economy. And I think uh, Chris is very right that the overall picture of the economy is that it's doing quite well. Uh, and, and I think the Fed uh, macro forecast is showing exactly that. But macro is not where people live. Um, you know, there are many different people. That, the people who have the, what the Fed considers sufficient amount of savings to be able to finance their way through the high prices that we've encountered through inflation, that's the upper 10 to 5 to 10 percent of the population. Those of us who are, you know, in the middle class are really uh, having a tough time dealing with a lot of prices, the high prices, because uh, our wages and, and incomes really haven't kept up with that. And I think one of the things that... Um, that the Biden administration, the burden that's going to be challenging them uh, is to say there's a huge amount of the population that feels that they just haven't caught up with the high prices. Uh, they're really living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and, and, and what do we do there? And, and yes, as long as they have a job, I think they, they'll continue to be able to feed their families. But is job security there? Uh, and, and that's why the Fed is starting to turn its discussion toward the economy and, and what's going on, the possibility that the consumer may no longer be able to spend as, as strongly as they have in the past. Uh, and, and if the consumer gives out, then the economy starts to give out because 70 percent of the GDP is the consumer. So, so I think the, the worry that uh, the challenge for the fiscal authorities, not the monetary authorities, the monetary policy can only affect the overall economy. And its mechanism is through interest rates, which really hits some segments much harder than others, like investment and housing. But the consumer itself, when we go in for a car loan, these car, car loan prices, interest rates are, are enormous. Uh, the default rates that a lot of people are facing for car loans is starting to rise again. So, so there's a huge segment, you know, easily half the population that's having a tough time dealing with meeting their, their, their yeah. living expenses day to day. Well, and, and, and if unemployment goes up, uh, significantly, and people have even less job security. Uh, you know that that's going to be a, a a big issue as well. Chris, your your response to what Bill laid out? Well, I think Bill laid out um, the political narrative. That's certainly the conversation in Sacramento and Washington D.C. But yet again, it's not the actual data. Um, look, uh, take a look at the labor markets, for example. 
Um, unemployment remains very low. Tight labor markets are particularly good for lower paid, lower skilled workers. And sure enough, lower paid, lower skilled workers have seen their incomes grow faster. Not, by the way, since the pandemic ended, but really going back to 2015. Um, according to the data from the Atlanta Fed, people in the bottom quartile of earnings have seen their earnings go up by a full third more so than the top quartile. So actually, income inequality is falling. It's been falling for almost eight years. Um, those trends are stronger now than they were a few years ago. Uh, and I appreciate that this is not in the newspaper, but that's in the data. That's just basic reality. Income inequality, by the way, is still too high, but it is nice to see the trend moving in the right direction. And the other part, of course, has to do with the surge in consumer spending and inflation. We continue to build, live in this world where somehow or other inflation is considered to be bad for consumers, which is completely backwards. There's an old cliche in economics that inflation is nothing more than the consequence of too many dollars chasing too few goods. Inflation is caused by excessive demand. A recession is caused by not enough demand. Now, the reason we have inflation is because um, <clears throat> back during the pandemic, when the Fed threw a preposterous amount of money at the economy, $5 trillion in quantitative easing, a 35% increase in money supply, that caused asset markets to spike. Put this in context, uh, households today are worth $142 trillion. That's a 30% higher than it was before the pandemic. And it is all that new wealth that's fueling this consumer spending. And yet again, proportionately speaking, the biggest increases in net worth have been for the bottom 50% of households, not for the top 50%. Um, again, wealth inequality is still too high, has a long ways to go, but the trends are moving in the right direction. And that, of course, continues to fuel consumers. It's as simple as that. The strength of the U.S. economy remains consumers. Consumers have not been budged by inflation because consumers are causing inflation. And until we accept that fundamental premise, Fed policy is going to be continued to be dangerously off base. So, Chris, wh what about let's let's take it uh, here in Southern California, where housing prices are very high. Gas prices are are uh, about as high as they are anywhere in the country. And yes, there have been increases for lower income earners, as you suggest, uh, largely because of the shortage of workers, which has fueled competition and demand for their services. But has that increase in their compensation um, been anywhere near as significant as the increases in the cost of gas and housing, particularly? Oh, absolutely, they have. Real incomes have gone up in Southern California. You know, here's a statistic I like to look at, which is the share of income households are spending on housing within, say, the Los Angeles region. Guess what? That hasn't changed in five or six years, Larry. The increase in housing costs are occurring because of increases in income for Los Angeles residents. This is what happens when you have a limited housing supply. Uh, increases in incomes quickly translate into, of course, increases in rents, because that's the only equilibrating factor. Um, so as always, if we want housing to be more affordable in California, the story is build more of it. And that's the one place we have truly failed miserably. Housing trends have not budged at all in a decade. We're talking with Chris Thornburg of Beacon Economics, Bill Lee of the Milken Institute. Devin in Hollywood asks, what impact will China's economy and the challenges they're facing have on the U.S. economy next year? Bill? 
Well, I think China is, is essentially a big producer. You think of China as the big factory for the world, and they've been the source of manufacturing goods now for almost a decade. Uh, and, and the fact that China's economy has gone into doldrums means that, that workers there are much more uncertain about their, about their futures. But as far as we are concerned, um, we, don't, um, they, we, don't, we don't export much to China. Uh, we are big importers from China. So the fact that their economy is weakening doesn't really cause us much damage initially. Uh, and and what, the facing, what the real problem for China is going to be is that people will no longer look at China as a safe place for investment. So a lot of the investment dollars that would have gone to China are now looking for other places to go. And in part, th- th- a lot of those dollars are coming back to the United States because the you know, real investors are realizing what a great place to invest the United States is. So the weakening of the Chinese economy actually can help uh, the U.S. economy because it allows the U.S. economy to attract more investment dollars. But I, I want to go back to what, what Chris said uh, Yeah, real briefly, uh, Bill. Yeah, please. The economy is doing quite well. I want our listeners to remember that you know, when, you, when you actually ask consumers how they're feeling and how they're doing, there's a huge amount of discontent that inflation has really damaged their life style. And, and I think that's something that is a political reality. And it's a, it, it, you know, perceptions become reality if perceptions last long enough. And right now, it's a very long-lasting feeling for the last, uh, you know, since the Biden administration took over, that we're just not doing as well as we did before. And I think that's something that reflects reality. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much, as always, for being with us. William Lee, Chief Economist, Executive Director at the Milken Institute, and Chris Thornburg, Founding Partner, Economist, Beacon Economics. Coming up on Air Talk on LAST 89.3, we're going to look at the drug ketamine, uh, as you've undoubtedly heard in the uh, uh, toxicological report uh, of the late actor Matthew Perry of Friends fame. It was found that he uh, died of an overdose of ketamine, which is used in the treatment of depression. It's also an anesthetic. We're going to be talking about how ketamine is used in the treatment of depression and uh, what, if any, concerns people using ketamine should have about the drug. That's coming up in just a moment here on Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theatre Company at the Los Angeles Theatre Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Coming up later this hour, I want to hear from you about your favorite holiday-themed film. We talked about favorite holiday television shows a couple weeks ago on the program. Today, it's movies. That's coming up a little bit later this hour. But uh, the autopsy report that was released last week for the late actor Matthew Perry noted acute effects of the anesthetic ketamine as an element contributing to his death. There were other factors that were also cited. But uh, this brings to mind, of course, what ketamine is, why it's used. Matthew Perry uh, spoke very openly about ketamine and how he felt it was helpful for treatment of his depression. It is used for that purpose, even though it was developed as an anesthetic. Joining us to talk about ketamine how it was originally used, the ways in which it's used to treat depression. is board-certified anesthesiologist Stephen Mandel. He's the co-founder of Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles. Thank you very much, Dr. Mandel. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, let's talk about the development of ketamine. What, what was it created for? Larry, ketamine was originally created uh, as an anesthetic and approved by the FDA in 1970 as an anesthetic for use in humans. It rapidly became the most among the most widely used anesthetics in the world because it has such an extraordinarily good safety profile. And so this is, is this used uh, often for surgeries, for example? That's correct. Uh, not uh, so much to maintain surgery as to put people to sleep. For a couple of decades, ketamine was the most widely used anesthetic in the world. Uh, literally, and it's still on the World Health Organization's list of 50 essential medicines that every government should make available to its population. And when was it determined that it might be helpful for people dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder or depression? In the uh, early and mid-90s, it was discovered, uh, usually among the war wounded coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, who were given ketamine for anesthesia so they could uh, have more surgery on their war wounds, it was discovered that in addition to being effective as an anesthetic, many of these patients were also having some relief of their PTSD symptoms. And then um, studies were developed, I understand, to to look at that. What are the, the ways that typically ketamine is administered to someone if they're being treated for depression or PTSD? Great question. It's <clears throat> the route of administration is crucial. Uh, Ninety-eight plus percent of all ketamine research is done with ketamine can be given intravenously via an infusion. In my clinic, uh, we're among the oldest clinics in the nation. We give ketamine intravenously via a computer-controlled uh, syringe pump. And it's an why? infusion gradually over time. This is in contrast to how it's given when it's used as an anesthetic, when it's given as a typically as a push in a vein. And uh, what are the advantages of of providing ketamine as an infusion versus, for example, a nasal inhalant? The nasal inhalant is episodic, Larry. You get a very, very abrupt rise in blood level and a pretty rapid fall off. So your time at altitude, if you will, is relatively brief. With an infusion, we can make the takeoff more gradual. 
depending on how we adjust the pump. And we can make the time at altitude as long as it's therapeutically indicated. In Matthew Perry's case, given the very high level of, of ketamine in his system, presumably this was not from an infusion, but was it, it, that ketamine was administered or self-administered another way. Do you consider that to be risky to do that, or or is it a matter like any medication of just being diligent in, in how one takes it? I think that's quite risky. Larry, it's extremely risky. Um, I'm so sorry that Matthew perished, and I don't have personal information about the circumstances. Uh, it's clear he was not being treated and wasn't using ketamine at the time of his demise for a therapeutic purpose. He had enough ketamine in his body to provide general anesthesia, according to the coroner. This is not how it's given therapeutically. When ketamine is given for mood disorders, uh, it's given by an infusion and all of our patients remain awake. Uh, Mr. Perry's blood level is more than 10 times what he received would receive in a clinic. And our one-tenth is given over an hour. His apparently was there all at once. And, and ketamine um, is used by some people as a recreational drug. Um, and share with us a bit about, you know, when, when people use it that way, what's the effect of it? They use it uh, recreationally, typically by nasal insufflation. They get a rapid rise. It's a trip. It's a trippy drug. It's a, people call it a dis dissociative anesthetic. It's essentially an, a psychedelic. Uh, they see things that aren't there. They hear things that aren't there. The sensory experience is greatly intensified. Uh, touch, sound are particularly heightened. Uh, color is enhanced. Um, these are at levels that are not usually sought after in the clinic. They're easily achieved with an infusion pump, but that's not our purpose. Mm -hmm. The recreational use is, is really to get out of your mind, and the therapeutic use is to better understand your relationship with your mind. The nickname uh, for the drug uh, typically uh, used for recreational purposes is Special K. We're talking about ketamine, its appeal, its used for treatment of depression or PTSD. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Mandel, board-certified anesthesiologist and co-founder of Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles. Also with us, professor of psychiatry at Yale University and director of Yale's Depression Research Program, Dr. Gerard Sanacora. Dr. Sanacora, thank you for being with us today. Nice to be here, Larry. Uh, what are your concerns about the way that that ketamine is being used? I mean, presumably you think it's it, it is certainly not good to use it recreationally, but do you have concerns about the ways in which it's used therapeutically? I, I mean, this is always a struggle in the field: is how do you balance um, access to a potentially very uh, uh, beneficial drug to balancing the safety. Where the evidence is strongest, and I, and I do have to disagree uh, with Dr. Mandela a little bit, the evidence is clearly strongest for intranasal esketamine. That is the FDA-approved version that has the highest quality, large data samples following people out for four years, and a REMS that looks at over 800,000 administrations. So we have really clear data, and that's what the FDA has approved. 
uh, but there, there are limits to that. And that is very specifically for people with treatment-resistant depression or people with major depression with suicidal ideation and given in a way where it's always in a healthcare facility with a healthcare provider observing it. Anytime you stray from that, you're just going into less and less uh, confidence in the data. Why wouldn't the infusion method give um, the the clinician even more control, though? I, I would think that it would be easier to monitor the level in someone's system. You wouldn't necessarily get the spike that you would from the nasal inhalant. Why wouldn't infusing be better? So... The the way the nasal uh, insufflation has been set up is, is it does mimic the PK pretty closely to a typical 0.5 milligram per kilogram over 40 minutes. But you are correct. The IV does give you more control. Um, and in certain cases, it clearly may be beneficial if you're really worried about needing to stop it. Uh, so there are times to use one or the other. But the standard way, there is no real control over the IV administration. The FDA has what's called a REMS, a risk evaluation mitigation strategy. So when they approved the intranasal version, it came with this very strict REMS that requires it to be delivered in a certain fashion, monitored very closely, and, and the pharmacies are followed very closely. When it's given through the IV route, there's no clear way of following that. We're incredibly interested in knowing how they do compare to each other. And in fact, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute has recently um, awarded us uh, a contract to actually look at the comparison between these two treatments. Dr. Sanacora, what about for people who are dealing with treatment-resistant depression or suicidal ideation who uh, also have a history of substance abuse because the fact that that ketamine uh, has this sort of, you know, strong hallucinogenic effect and might make it appealing for people, as, as there clearly is a recreational market for the drug. Um, how then do you administer it or do you administer it to people who are prone to addiction? So I think you have to be extremely cautious in, in this sense. In, in medicine, I really uh, hesitate to say never or always, uh, but there are there are cases where you may be able to justify this, but you really need to be very cautious in using uh, ketamine in people that have substance use disorder. There are some studies that actually suggest it may be beneficial, but those studies are done in very rigorous, tightly managed protocols. Um, so I, I just the real answer is I don't think we know enough, but I think you need to be extremely cautious if you're going to be treating patients at high risk for substance use disorder with this drug. Dr. Mandel, can you also share your thoughts on that? Yes, actually, the um, original use of ketamine for behavioral disorders long time ago in a faraway place was its use in alcoholics in Moscow in the 1980s. And it was spectacularly successful in helping serious drunks to become abstinent. Uh, in fact, the study had an almost 50% abstinence rate at one year in ketamine. Ketamine is extremely effective for substance use disorder, and uh, it's especially good for opiates uh, and for alcohol, not only to help people to uh, not use their substances, but to give them the strength and the commitment 
to resist the cravings that almost always accompany uh, recent abstinence. I wonder, though, when that study was conducted, if you had a supply of uh, underground ketamine available for people to even abuse. And and so would that have even been a concern that people could become um, uh, overusers of ketamine at the time of that study? Well, I, I don't know what conditions were like in Moscow in the in the 80s for underground drugs, Larry. But uh, I can tell you that the recreational group and the group seeking therapeutic benefits uh, have very little overlap uh, in the 2020s in the United States. We're this talking- is definitely a drug of abuse. There's no question about it. It is not addictive in the sense that the traditional addictive drugs are addictive. It certainly can be abused. People can certainly make bad choices around it. This is quite separate and apart from its use for the relief of the suffering of depression and suicidality and PTSD. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Mandel, anesthesiologist and co-founder of Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles. Also with us, Yale University professor of psychiatry, Dr. Gerard Santacora, who's director of Yale's depression research program. Dr. Santacora, your, your response, Dr. Mandel. We, we have to remember that those studies were done in the Soviet Union uh, quite a while ago with the research standards that would be very different than what we have today. That being said, the, the results were promising. They really were. But I think what everybody has to remember is these were done under extremely tightly controlled conditions. This wasn't being done sort of willy-nilly out there with very loose or very um, minimal uh impact or clinical care being provided alongside the ketamine. And that's really, I think, where some of the major risks occur today is thinking that it's just the ketamine and that it's not all the other ancillary care that goes with it that's having the effect. Are you concerned, Dr. Santacora, that people hearing the promise of ketamine and, you know, being put off by the costs of of having infusions, I don't know to what extent that's covered by insurance or not, but but that they'll seek um, on the underground market ketamine and self-administer in the hope that it'll deal with um, their deep depression or PTSD? That is my major concern. I've I've been working in this field for over 30 years at this point. Um, my, my real concern is that people are going to be using this outside of the the data that we have available to us, either using it on their own um, or even getting it at treatment centers that don't provide a more comprehensive type approach. So this idea that just taking the medicine is what's going to get you better and not having all the other uh, ancillary services that really need to be provided for people uh, these illnesses or these disorders. Nick in Santa Monica asked, and we're almost out of time, but such a good question, wondering if there's uh, any chance that the price of intravenous ketamine will become more affordable for those interested in potential mental health benefits. Dr. Mandel. I certainly hope so. Um, Ketamine is very inexpensive. Ketamine, racemic ketamine that we use for intravenous infusions is very inexpensive. Uh, The nasal insufflation medicine is uh, over 100 times more costly. The problem with ketamine is that insurance companies say they won't reimburse it. And they say that's because uh, it's off-label use. Of course, they ignore that 
almost one third of all psychiatric medicines prescribed in the United States are prescribed off-label. Most of those are reimbursed. I want to thank Ketamine you. Ketamine is not yet. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. That's Dr. Stephen Mandel, Ketamine Clinics, Los Angeles, Dr. Gerard Sanacora of Yale University, joining us to talk about ketamine. It's Air Talk on LA, point 89.3. Coming up, I want to hear from you, your favorite Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa holiday-themed film, any holiday-themed film for these year-end holidays that you particularly appreciate. The more obscure the better, but we're looking forward to hearing any of them at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. The great composer John Williams, Somewhere in My Memory, the Christmas tune composed for the holiday favorite Home Alone. Home Alone, of course, just one example of a beloved holiday film. And I'd love to hear from AirTalk listeners your favorite holiday-themed movies. We've heard from critics as they've weighed in. We've talked about the top television holiday-themed programs. But now it's a chance for you as an AirTalk listener. I'm counting on you to let us know what holiday film do you really look forward to seeing this time of year. Uh, For me, A Christmas Story is one. I could. I can't tell you how many times I've seen parts of that, um, and of course it runs. I think on TBS uh, in a loop for 24 or 48 hours around the holidays, and I I just never get tired of it. It's just uh, it's funny. It's another one of those films, like so many holiday themed films, that was not a huge box office movie when it came out. Kind of went under the radar, and then was discovered in later years and has become a perennial. That's that's also true for It's a Wonderful Life, which when it came out, you know, despite being directed by Frank Capra and having, you know, Jimmy Stewart as the star of the film, 
was by, you know, no means uh, box office magic, but of course considered by many to be the iconic Christmas-themed film. So I want to hear from you, your favorite holiday film. You can email it to us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location or first name, or you can also call us at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Joining us is film critic for the film Verdict, author of the book Have Yourself a Movie, Little Christmas, Alonzo Duraldi. Alonzo, thank you so much for joining us again to talk about favorite holiday films. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Larry. So, um, do you look forward to this time of year to get to get to revisit some of these favorites? Well, uh, I have to say, um, one of the one of the perks of writing a Christmas movie book is that it gives you the excuse to watch this stuff all year round. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, that's right. It's your job. Yeah, exactly. So I don't I don't feel like I have to limit myself anymore to to, to this time of year. But you know, there is always such an onslaught of. Uh, new titles at this time of year. I mean, obviously the the ton of new movies coming out of Hallmark, but also uh, you know the new theatrical releases. Um, you know, Netflix, Shutter, even you know comes up with their own uh, uh, holiday stuff. So yeah, they're, they're every every uh, every Christmas season brings around uh, several dozen new titles to check out. You know, you mentioning all the new ones that come out every year. Uh, I should also uh, ask any listeners if you've seen a more recently released Christmas film. Maybe you've caught it on television or on one of the streaming services, and you really enjoyed it. You want to recommend it others, this is a great time to do so at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Turner Classic Music Movies is always a great place to um, to find uh, themed films around various holidays of the year, including Fourth of July and Halloween. But uh, Alonzo, they always do great work with Christmas, and sometimes they they dig up some real um, undiscovered gems in that process. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I was uh, first writing the book back in, I guess, 2009, because it came out in 2010, um, they were really championing a film called Remember the Night, uh, which was written by Preston Sturges, directed by the great Mitchell Leeson, uh, with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, um, and, and about as far away from double indemnity as you can get. <laughs> uh, and that was a movie that had kind of fallen between the cracks and people had sort of forgotten about. Uh, and so that's one that, that they have uh, really kind of brought into the... Uh, Back into the conversation, they even, you know, uh, co-produced the, the Blu-ray that Universal put out. Uh, and then uh, after my book came out, where I wrote about a, a very forgotten uh, made-for-TV project called A Carol, Carol for Another Christmas that was written by Rod Serling and directed by Joseph Mankiewicz with an all-star cast, including uh, Eva Marie Saint and uh, Peter Sellers and Robert Shaw. Um, uh, you know, that one started getting into circulation on TCM as well. And this year they're doing a full week of programming uh, with everything from, you know, uh, rom-coms and, and, you know, family classics to noir films. So it, it's, a, it's a really wide spectrum. All right. A noir Christmas. I love that. 866-893-5722. Sandra in Torrance, you have one that um, probably has not been all that seen. Share with us your favorite. 
Uh, yes. I found a little movie on Netflix last year with Freddie Prince Jr. It's called Christmas with You. And it actually has a little bit of everything. It's a family movie, and it's kind of become a, a bit of a, a rom-com when he meets the star that made this beautiful Christmas song that became a hit. All right. The film is Christmas With You, and I think you said it's available on Netflix. So uh, very good to hear about that. Thanks so much. We appreciate it, Sandra. 866-893-5722. Christina, in Palm Springs, your favorite holiday film. Well, there's a lot of the classics that are my favorites, but I saw a new one recently that uh, I look forward to seeing again, and that's called Spirited. It came out like two years ago with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, and it's a musical updated version of A Christmas Carol, and it's really very entertaining. Uh, Alonzo, are you familiar with that movie? Uh, yeah, it came out last year. I'm a big fan. Uh, I, in fact, had kind of hoped they were going to make their way into the uh, Best Original Song Oscar race last year. But, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's the first Christmas movie that Will Ferrell made after Elf, believe it or not. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a very fun spin on A Christmas Carol, and it is a big, splashy musical. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people, it didn't really get a lot of theatrical play. It, it sort of went right to Apple TV+. Plus, and so... It might have flown under some folks' radar, but I, I very highly recommend it. It's one of the best ones of recent years. All right. Spirited with Will Farrell and Ryan Reynolds. Christina, thank you so much. Sharon in Mid-City, L.A. says, My favorite Christmas movie, or maybe I should say anti-Christmas movie, is Bad Santa. It's such a classic. I love Bad Santa, too. It's it's not for everybody. It's really dark, but very, very funny. Uh, Alonzo, are you a fan of Bad Santa? Oh, yeah, for sure. That one's uh, celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Oh, actually. my God. Uh, along, wow. Alongside Elf and Love Actually. So uh, we can all feel a little older uh, just from that information. Uh, yeah, no, Bad Santa is a lot of fun. And, and I think that what's great about the Christmas movie genre is that it, it does throw open uh, to, to such variety. You know, like you can have a film like Bad Santa that's really sort of poking at uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the sheen and the celebration of the season and, and, and sort of reminder that it's not that great for everybody. You know, you can have a horror film, you can have a noir film. There's a lot of different places you can go um, within the Christmas genre. It's not all white Christmas, you know. Uh, Alonzo Giraldi is with us, film critic for the film Verdict, and he's author of Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. We're taking listener suggestions for holiday films that you really love, and maybe it's one that's under the radar are, but you'd like to share it because you enjoyed it. We want to hear why. We're at 866-893-5722. Louise in Beverly Glen says, meet me in St. Louis with a wonderful song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I'm with you. I love meet me in St. Louis. 866-893-5722. Back in a minute. Tyler, the creator from the animated remake of The Grinch, 
It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We're hearing listeners' favorite holiday films, Bobby and Los Feliz. What's one that you particularly enjoy? I love the movie Last Holiday. I watched it a few years ago, and um, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness, and I was incredibly depressed. And I wanted to watch some feel-good movie, and I put on Last Holiday. And the main character, Queen Latifah, she also is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness um, in the movie. But instead of being depressed, she decides to go fly to Europe, live her best life, and it just brought me up. And now every year I watch oh. this movie. That I love it when it it's something that you know you can you can relate to the protagonist's experience because of what you're going through and. Bobby, it sounds like is very helpful. I, I hope your health is, is doing well now. Yes, it's stabilized. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so it. glad. I'm so glad. That's one of my wife's favorites, by the way, Last Holiday with Queen Latifah, LL Cool J co-star. Bobby and Los Feliz, we're at 866-893-5722. Kim and Glendora says Bill Murray Scrooge, my favorite because Bill is so smug and snarky, and honestly, the retelling of Dickens is just hilariously funny. That's Kim and Glendora. Uh, Bocce in Woodland Hills, I love Rush Hour. It's always been a holiday season favorite for my family. It's fun, exciting, a lot of action. We love it. Uh, Soli in Pasadena, The Feast of the Seven Fishes with Jeremy Allen White. It's life of life story following a large Italian family on Christmas Eve as they prepare for the traditional Feast of the Seven Fishes. Darlene in the Fairfax District, there's a RuPaul Christmas movie I liked. It's a parody of all the Hallmark movies. It's raunchy, not for kids. Uh, How the Bitch Stole Christmas. Darlene, I haven't heard of that one. Uh, Stephen Whittier, I really love the Christmas scene in John Waters' 1974 movie, Female Trouble. I saw that film years ago. I don't remember the Christmas scene. I'm going to have to look back on that. And again, that's not for not for everybody, uh, but starring Divine, one of my favorite all-time guests on Air Talk. Um, female trouble star of that film. Linda Mission Viejo, my mother used to rave about Silent Night, Holy Night, starring Laurie Bridges and Shirley Jones. I never got to see it, but it was a love story. I want to know if Alonzo has heard of it. Uh, Linda, thanks very much. Alonzo, have you heard of that Silent Night, Holy Night? Uh, I have heard of it. I have not seen it. It was a made-for-TV movie, and uh, you know, before you know, the, the Hallmark sort of you know took over this space. There were there are a lot of really great TV movies over the years. I mean, and and look, I I also like the Hallmark movies. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, but there 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 have been some classics. One of my favorite is a '70s movie uh, that Randall Kleiser directed called The Gathering with uh, Ed Asner and Maureen Stapleton. Uh, I, I think that one really holds up, and it's just a, a beautiful film. I remember that was but critically acclaimed, it. yeah, when it came out. Linda, thanks so much. William in Pasadena, I love The Muppets Christmas Carol because how seriously Michael Caine is playing off the characters. Disney needs to do every film with The Muppets. That's William in Pasadena. That's that's your favorite, Alonzo. Uh, that's a great one. Uh, there are so many wonderful Christmas Carol adaptations floating around. I, I think probably my 
my personal fave is the 1970 Albert Finney musical, uh, Scrooge. But, uh, you know, yeah, the Muppets are great. The Alistair Sim version, of course. Uh, the George C. Scott made for TV one from the 80s. Uh, I love a diva's Christmas Carol with Vanessa Williams. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, there have been a lot of fun spins on it. Dan in Cathedral City says, I really love Tokyo Godfathers by mm. Satoshi Kon because it talks about the search and discovery of found families. It's a beautiful animation that takes full advantage, advantage of the medium. That's Dan in Cathedral City, Tokyo Godfathers. Chris in Winnetka, Blast of Silence from 1966, a Christmas noir, and the American Cinematheque hosted a screening just a couple of days ago of Blast of Silence. Let me share some others quickly because we're short on time. So many great ones. Vic in Anaheim, Shop Around the Corner with James Stewart from 1940. I saw it once on an airplane. Loved it so much. I watch it every year. It's both a Christmas story and a love story. Vic, it's a truly great film. Sharon in Simi Valley emailed, I look forward to watching it happened on Fifth Avenue on Turner Classic Movies every year. A charming, funny David versus Goliath story filled with amazing characters restore your faith in humanity. Jim and Claremont emailed Love the Coopers with Diane Keaton, uh, Alan Arkin, John Gold, uh, 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 Goldman, a real charmer, I think she means Goodman, should be much better known. Uh, Trey and Woodland Hills, The Holdovers, starring Paul Giamatti, I not only loved it, but believe it will quickly become a perennial holiday favorite. I love that as well. I interviewed Alexander Payne for the film. You can find that at LAS.com. And uh, another one, Tom, for Shop Around the Corner. And Zach in Long Beach, The Santa Claus, and any of the Christmas Carol movies. Uh, as for Hanukkah movies, I don't know if Rugrats Hanukkah is a movie or TV movie, but I love how they tell the story through a tot size. I know that's a real favorite, the Rugrats Hanukkah. Alonzo, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Alonzo Duraldi of The Final Verdict, and have yourself a merry little, a mo- little uh, merry movie little Christmas. Have a great afternoon. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.